Hello and welcome to an advertisement for Wytho, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. The show exists because I inherited at least three record collections, some from random strangers, and I decided to launch a project to listen to every one of my records. In each episode, I will attempt to reconstruct where I got the record, tell you a history of the artist, place the record in context, and then tell you what I thought about the record. The extensive show notes will include links for listening along as we go, so this can be a participatory experience. So join me as I attempt to understand why I own a spoken word T.S. Eliot record, a record of Greek folk music, and at least five albums by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Thank you for listening to my advertisement, and I hope you find the answers you seek in your record collection. And welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 111, Pope Hadrian Third. So that is episode 111, Pope Hadrian III. Seems like a perfect <laughs> <laughs> symmetry right there for you. It is some good symmetry. Now, there also seems to be some confusion around Hadrian's name. And we're going to have to talk about that first, because apparently naming confusion is the name of the game right now. So this is due to a 17th century monk and historian called Jean Mabulon, who recorded that Hadrian's birth name was Ageptus and that he took the name Hadrian upon his election. Now, later scholars like Reginald L. Poole believe that this is a mistake and that Jean Mabillon has conflated Adrian III, who is the successor of Marinus I, with Ageptus II, who is the successor of Marinus II. I did not follow any of that. Like, I tried, and it just, it fell off my brain like a, a duck. Water on a duck. Water on a duck's back. Okay, so let's break this down. This is is Hadrian III. He's coming after Marinus I. There is this man, this historian from the 17th century, who says, oh, his real name was Ageptus, but he changed it. They think this is a mistake because there is an Ageptus who follows Marinus II later on, and so he's probably just confused them because they both follow a Marinus. Ah, uh, yes. Got it. And since we had all the confusion about the Marinus name last week, we could just blame the Pope Marini again if we want to. If we want to. Or we could just blame this guy who didn't <laughs> have several cross-references. Jean Mabillon. <laughs> he used the ancient French version of S. Jeeves. <laughs> Which would be awful, yes. <laughs> so... This whole naming confusion, by the way, turned me on to a very good and useful source that I would like to cite in thanks. So this is The Names and Numbers of Medieval Popes by Reginald L. Poole. And just the fact that that article exists goes to show how many pope names and numbers get messed up in the medieval period. That's fine. We'll just mess them up some more. Considering we started episode three as Pope One. Everybody be confused all of the time. 
Look, it just made it so it lines up absolutely perfect on the spreadsheet anyways. So I can actually go to the number that is the episode and that is the correct row. And I refuse to apologize for that. Is that because the first two are just some garbage? Well, you gotta have the title, right? Of whatever the oh, category, you know, right. your columns. <laughs> you f***ed it up on purpose is what you told me. I did. I absolutely did. So I refuse to apologize for that. So this is Hadrian the Third. We're calling him Hadrian or Adrian all the way through because he's definitely didn't change his name. So Hadrian was born in Rome or in Teano, which is just south of Rome, and his father's name was Benedict. And like those who came before him, he entered the church at a relatively young age and worked his way through the minor orders. However, we're not sure if he actually served as a cardinal priest anywhere or if he just remained a deacon before he was elected pope. There is no record of him being promoted beyond that point. What we do know, however, is that as we've been alluding to, remember, the nobility in Rome are looking to have total control over the papal elections and the Roman church as a whole, and that Positions right now are being filled in less than forthright ways with like simony and corruption on the rise. And this comes up when dealing with Adrian's election, not because he's accused of having bought his office, but rather because he notably did the opposite. It seems that the reason that Hadrian made an appealing candidate was that he stood against the ongoing corruption and was a partisan of the policies of Pope John VIII. So he may have been this popular figure who was anticipated to, like, crack down on noble interference. And so that is why he is elected to be the next pope on May 17th, 884. And once he was elected, crack down, he did. Hadrian proved very much to be on the same wavelength as Pope John VIII and had zero interest in the conciliatory policies of Pope Marinus. He was committed to reducing simony and to stop the excessive, corrupt, and uncleric-like behaviors that these aristocratic churchmen were making a lifestyle of. One source even suggested that he began his crackdown by having Formosus, as the perceived leader of this faction, arrested, which doesn't seem to be confirmed in any other source on Formosus, but, you know, all the sources on Formosus want to talk about one particular thing. Yeah, that's true. But what we do know for sure is that Hadrian cracked down on his other cronies, including George of the Aventine, who we mentioned in John's episode- George, do you remember what George of the Aventine did? He murdered somebody and got away with it. Yeah, that's right. He was having a summer of George and he murdered his... <laughs> he was having a summer of George. We're going to regret these Seinfeld references one day, but... I don't think we are. <laughs> he murdered his brother to take his mistress, right? So that was that whole thing. So Pope Hadrian had George of the Aventine arrested publicly condemned yet again, and then ended his summer of George by blinding him. Ooh! Yeah, he's not messing around. No. 
He also severely punished another noble woman, Mary the Superstana, who was widow of Gregory the Superista, which is a military commander, by having her whipped naked down the streets of Rome. Oh, I feel like that's what they were trying to do with Cersei, and then he balked. Right? He definitely was like, no, maybe I shouldn't whip her down the streets. Well... Mary the Superstana gets whipped down the streets. <laughs> would have made that way better. It would have, and it would have it definitely had that historical vibe, because, you know, everybody wants to talk about the historical references in Game of Thrones all the time. So this is because it seemed that she had been involved in the plot to have her husband murdered, presumably by George of the Aventine. So that she could bang George. Yeah, that's that's very possible. Or she just wanted her husband out of the way. Her husband, by the way, was indeed murdered, and he had a very famous death, as he was killed in St. Peter's, and it was recorded in the annals of Fulda. Quote, A very wealthy man named Gregory, who was also a military commander that the Romans call a superista, was murdered by his colleague in the atrium of St. Peter's, The floor of the church was drenched with his blood as he was dragged over it. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Now, there is some speculation based on how the Annals of Fulda recorded this murder right after commenting about Pope John being murdered, that this Gregory, who is actually the one murdered in St. Peter's, blood being drenching the floor as he's dragged away, might have been the man who actually carried out the deed of hammering Pope John to death. Right? Remember, we talked about this in his episode, that there was some famous talk about his murderer being dragged out and the blood of St. Peter's on the floor. This is why, because these stories are right next to each other in the Annals uh, of Fulda. Yes, okay. Yeah. So people are just getting, once again, confused. Yes, there's a lot of, like, maybe there's a lot of confusion in this episode. You're going to notice <laughs> that is a theme. But... The old ass Jeeves is spitting out adjacent answers is what's happening. Yeah, we're using the same system as Jean Mabillon, I guess. But what we know is that he was murdered. This Gregory, the superista, was murdered in St. Peter's. And so his wife, Mary, is whipped naked down the street for probably having a part in it. What we can take away is that Hadrian was very serious about putting an end to the aristocratic stranglehold on the church and this corrupt bad behavior. And we generally know how that goes. But first, unfortunately, the major event that is associated with Hadrian's papacy is a famine caused by a literal plague of locusts. Um, nom, nom, nom. (laughs) At least this is this is what we believe, because we get this recording primarily from, guess what it is? The Liber Pontificalis. Ah, uh, well, so was um, our anti-Pope Anastasius just a little bit inconvenienced or was there an actual plague? So here's the thing about this Liber Pontificalis entry, because we have, you know, like we said, we have acknowledged the end of the continuous Liber Pontificalis. We don't even actually have an entry for Hadrian. So if Anastasius was around, he didn't write that one. But what we do have is an entry for his successor, Stephen V, 
in which this plague is apparently mentioned as happening during Hadrian's reign. So this is what the entry says. Quote, Pope Hadrian of memorable renown, who had succeeded that blessed Pope Marinus, died. In his time, the Roman citizens had suffered many problems, both from devastation by locusts and also from the insufficiency of rain and from want and hunger that they then believed could be relieved by this venerable man's sanctity. So, that's what we have from the Liber Pontificalis. Maybe Anastasius was being dramatic, but we get it much later on. So, however, in Tim Newfield's The Contours of Disease and Hunger in Carolingian and Early Etonian Europe, he suggests that maybe the Liber Pontificalis biographer has gotten confused and is oh no referring to a known locust plague that occurred in 873 which would have happened during the pontificate of Hadrian II so you know more confusion confusing this again with a different person this is because the 873 locust plague is recorded in other carolingian sources but there are no other Carolingian documentation for another locust plague at this time in the mid-880s. There are other sources that reference famines in the 880s, but those all seem to have happened in Africa. So it's kind of hard to say. Was he confused? Is he getting the time wrong? We're not quite sure. This is just a suggestion and it's one I'm not entirely convinced by, considering that the Liber Pontificalis goes on, and there's more to say for the next Pope's actions as having specifically to do with locusts, as we're going to see next week. So there's that. And then Tim Newfield, the writer who says that maybe this is a confusion, does admit that certain chroniclers of the time also just, like, didn't bother to record the known locust plague of 873. So it's possible that they just didn't bother to record this one as well. No one cares about locust plagues. Uh, it's just another locust plague. Yeah, like a total famine and a drought and people suffering. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, maybe nobody cared. But if the famine did happen... What is implied is that Hadrian gained significant popularity and praise by dedicating himself almost entirely to alleviating the hunger and suffering of the affected people. So we are going to give him credit for that because some of the sources that say it happened say he did an excellent job to the best of his abilities. Now, like his immediate predecessors, Hadrian was also concerned with the ongoing Muslim expansion across Europe and sought to maintain policies and alliances set out by previous popes to limit or halt their interactions with Christians. As we saw, Pope John had begun to collaborate an alliance in the south of Italy to prevent the Muslims from having alliances and trading partners that allowed them to more efficiently and effectively launch raids into Italy. And now Hadrian wants to ensure that the policy extended to the wider Christian world. And so he decides to concern himself with Spain, which was at this point almost entirely taken up with the Caliphate of Cordoba. 
And I will say that the Muslim expansion in Spain could be a whole series and a very interesting one at that. So everybody should check out the new Rexypod Spanish Arpada because I am sure they're going to cover it. That's a podcast that exists. It exists now. They just launched, I think, this month. So get on yeah, that. Yeah, last week, week before. Yeah, they just released their first actual ruler episode. So as of uh 216. I don't know when this episode is coming out onto the feeds. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a while. We have a nice backlog. That's true. <laughs> Hadrian wrote to the rulers of Christian-controlled Spain, which at the time was just the little top sliver, and urged them against making alliances with the caliphate. Although you can imagine that practically that wasn't super possible for them. You know, not great. Also, Bernard S. Bachrach's book, The Early Medieval Jewish Policy in Western Europe, also references a letter written by Hadrian to the Christians in both Christian and Muslim-controlled Spain, criticizing their, quote-unquote, friendly interactions with Jews. So, that's also terrible. Just have to, to throw that out. He's saying, hey, don't interact with those Muslims, but also don't interact with those Jews. And on this note, by the way, of terrible things, I, while researching this episode, found the most terrible website. Yes? Yeah. It's called the Thomas More Law Center, which, by the way, has an eagle and a sword at the top, and their tagline is, Battle Ready to Defend America. They had posted an article called, 15 Popes whose Islamophobia saved the Christian world from Muslim takeover, which um, just has the wrong tone all over it, right? <sighs> yeah, wow. The internet is sure a place that exists. Yeah, and so Hadrian III makes this list, along with our former popes who focused on anti-Muslim policy, including Marinus and Nicholas, but surprisingly not John VIII. Basically, they, uh, they credit Hadrian for a lot of the things that Pope John VIII is responsible for. So clearly this subject matter and the way that they're presenting it brings out their best scholarly sources. Not at all. Oh, it's bad. I'm pretty sure I have the website saved here for you. Do you want to see this awful banner? Yes. Here you go. You can, I feel like, look, Thomas oh. More was a hardcore Catholic. Now but this is a place that I went. I know, Ooh, I it's know. It's loading for me. Oh, what's up with this eagle? <laughs> Battle ready to defend America. It's just, it's really bad. And yeah. Um, How old is this website? Is this something that like came out after 9-11? This feels like something that appeared after 9-11. I I could didn't see a date on it when I took it in the first place. Yeah, it it's not great. Also, it's written by a uh, Father Portella, who is a native New Yorker who currently serves as the Chancellor of the Archdiocese in Florence, which makes me hate everything about that even more. Cause how dare he be in Florence with his views. This doesn't tell me anything. I know, I know, it's terrible, but this came up in my research, so I just had to share the, the awful that it is. 
This doesn't tell me anything about anything. It's just they hate culture wars, but also get out of here. I bet they fight about uh, what's that thing that they're trying to teach children in school? Critical race theory. I bet they oh, fight yeah. about that. Oh, big time. Do you guys have Soji down there, too? I don't know what that is. Sexual orientation, gender identity. They're oh, trying to- so they keep trying to lump that in with critical race theory down here. Yeah. And they're, and a lot of people on Twitter are like, that's, that's not a race. Nope. It's, I mean, it's <laughs> not. I mean, it should all be taught in the schools, but hey. <laughs> like, um, so here in particular, we have that stupid awake Illinois lady. And she's definitely on Twitter all the time. Like, how dare my children learn about sexual orientations and then tags it critical race theory. And then people are like, what? Yeah. Uh, uh, you can't fix stupid. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say this next sentence, which is that we cannot deny that the Muslims in Italy still very much posed a threat to the Pope and the Papal States, right? Look, they're fighty right now. It's not about anything else. It's not about culture war. Absolutely. It is definitely about the fightiness. And you will remember that the emperor has still not offered any practical support, right? In fact, Horace K. Mann referenced a 16th century historian, Caloris Sigonius, who claims that the situation was becoming so untenable that the dukes of Italy approached the pope, quote, disgusted with the emperor, and looking for other arrangements to be made. So... According to Sigonius, in response to the appeal of the dukes, Pope Hadrian issued two decrees. One that declared that Pope elects could be consecrated without imperial missi seeking confirmation, and another that decreed that if the emperor were to die without an heir, that the title of emperor would be conferred on one of the dukes of Italy, and that they could collectively nominate which one. However, based on what we have recorded from the actual time period, this seems unlikely. Perhaps he was confused. Horace K. Mann thinks it's possible that Sigonius extrapolated this from future events. And because the imperial succession currently was an issue. So maybe he just jumped to some conclusions. So the imperial succession, like I said, was an issue. Charles the Fat does not have a legitimate heir with his wife, Richard, but he does have an illegitimate son called Bernard. And Charles wanted to have his illegitimate son recognized as his heir, but this had gone down extremely poorly with the Frankish bishops, who openly opposed this move. And so the only chance that the emperor had at securing the succession of his son would be to have the Pope approve. Since we have established time and time again, the Pope was the ultimate decision maker in the legitimacy of the imperial title. And so Charles convoked a legal assembly at Worms and a royal assembly at this time was called a Diet. And this would be held in the city of Worms, but this is not the famous Diet of Worms, which yes, on paper definitely looks like Diet of Worms. Diet of Worms. 
This is not the famous of the Diet of Worms, but it is the Diet of Worms. Charles the Fat decides to have this Diet in Worms, and he requests that Pope Hadrian attend. He was hoping that the Pope would not only confirm the succession of Bernard, but also depose the bishops who had opposed him in the first place. He would have a justification. If they continue to resist the Pope supporting Charles, they'd have to be deposed. This will be great. And Pope Hadrian does go. He still continued the papacy's support of Charles as an emperor, and he's thinking this is a perfect opportunity to bend Charles's ear about the ongoing Muslim threat. Great, I'm, I'm going to go to the Diet of Worms. Unfortunately, while on the way to this meeting, Pope Hadrian III died in the Church of San Cesario Sul Panaro in Modena, or as the later entry of the Liber Pontificalis says, on the River Scultina at the villa called Vizula Chara in September of 885. Now, how he died seems to be a point of contention. Contention. Yeah. Many sources believe that he was assassinated with poison by the Roman nobles that he cracked down on again, kind of like what they did to Pope John VIII, right? That would make sense. However, nothing is concrete and his death is generally just dubbed suspicious instead of actual murder. Wendy J. Reardon also adds that Hadrian's father, Benedict, was still alive at this point, but that his body was not brought back to Rome to his family. They just left him there? Well, he was instead buried in the crypt altar of the Abbey of Nonantola, and then they were moved into the high altar in the Church of San Silvestro at the Nonantola Abbey, where his epitaph reads... The miracle working bones of the Supreme Pontiff Hadrian III. Rub them bones on you. What sort of miracles did his bones? I wish that I could tell you. There are absolutely no record of what sort of miracles this bones were said to have occurred. But his burial site was a very popular spot of pilgrimage at the time. And part of this might all be because it's very rare at the time to have a pope buried outside of Rome, so I'm sure it helped the appeal. Ah, so it's just whoever could show up now. Since the time of Pope Gregory the Great, only one other pope, Martin I, has been buried outside of St. Peter's. So but he doesn't have miracle bones, Bree. He does not. He does not, but... You might think that the miracle is that the bones are here and we get to have them as pilgrimage. So let's just, you know, amp up the whole thing. So there's that. I have a picture of the Nonantola Abbey and the crypt that his bones were buried in. Okay, let's see it. It's the table thing. Ah, yes, the table thing. I mean, it is kind of neat because there are so many arches. There's a lot of arches. I don't know. A lot of crypts look like this to me. Having yeah. been in several crypts, this looks like a crypt. It, it absolutely, having been in several crypts, I agree. It does look like a crypt. There's nothing particularly special about it, but we don't often get pictures because of all of the destruction of papal tombs. So. Fair. Did his have to be moved? No, because it's outside. So it's just been here the whole time. 
Well, it's it was moved. It was buried initially in the crypt altar, and then it was put his his remains were moved from here to the altar in the church of San Silvestro, which is still part of the abbey. So his epitaph is not here. It's in San Silvestro, but this was his crypt. All right. The altar. <laughs> the altar. It's at the altar. So that is Pope Hadrian III. And now it is time to rate him. Papatum infallium. First off, the emperor needed him to come to the Diet at Worms to confirm or deny his rights to appoint his illegitimate son his successor. So I am including this in Papatum Infallium as this is a manifestation of the power of the Pope. This is that moment of he decides what is legitimate. However, we could consider this for or against him because the Emperor also thought that he could summon the Pope for this occasion. So even if he recognizes the Pope as the moral authority, we could make an argument that he's viewing himself as superior and the Pope is at his beck and call. So keep that in mind. He clearly cracked down on the abuses of the aristocracy in the church, which is more substantial than Marinus's rollover attempts at reconciliation. And he contempts to, or, and he, ugh, why do I want to say contempts? And he attempts to continue resisting Muslim incursion, but mostly through letter writing that is kind of awful. That's what we can credit him for. Oh, you know what? I'm going to lean towards like a four. Four? Okay. I wish there was more about, I guess that's more secular I impact him. I wish there was more about this, this locus. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would like to see, we will get a little bit more information on locust-based activities in our next episode, which is a weird sentence, but yes. I can't give him that many points. The only thing I can really give him points for is the the cracking down on the abuses of the aristocracy. That's important. Yeah, it is important. Like we have we've been dealing with George and all these pose for like three episodes. It's true. It's true. A and, point um, for every episode we've been dealing with them. <laughs> <laughs> well you've given him a four, I'll give him a three, and that will give him a seven, which I think is fair. Fructus prohibitum. So again, coming back to to George and the Seinfeld gang here, the punishments he doles out are extremely harsh. He's blinding and whipping people naked in the streets. Do we want to give him a point for harshness? Is it at this point harsh or like did they get what was coming to them? I mean, it is pretty standard punishment, but it is still unusual when we see the popes making these sort of actually agreeing to make these punishments go through, right? So it's a little unusual, but it's not its not as shocking as it would be for us today. Yeah, no, Pope Francis isn't like, ah, I would like to whip Ivanka Trump through the, the streets of Rome. Oh, can we make that happen? <laughs> I'm going to blind Kanye West. I don't know. I mean, did he murder somebody? No, he's getting... Getting weird. He might murder somebody. He's getting weird. I I could definitely go on a rant about how I feel about the whole Kanye West mental health situation, but I won't. Um. So do we want to give him a point for this? No. It feels nice that he has punished somebody. <laughs> Who needed punishing? Fair. 
Fair. I think that's very reasonable. Seculari impactum. So even though we don't have the details, he is alleviating the suffering during a famine. And that is, that's great. I mean, that we can give him some serious credit for it because everyone else seems to have really thought he did a great job. And this is a big what if, because we don't know exactly what would have happened if Hadrian had gotten to the Diet at Verms and what he might have determined for the Empire. So unfortunately... There probably was more points in this category to give if he if just die. died. Yeah, exactly. So what we can credit him for is alleviating suffering during a famine. That's a good, good like six for me. Cause yeah. like, you know, Rome has been in some bad spots and we've seen popes just absolutely muck it up. Do you remember Pope Sabinian who like just raised the prices and sold everybody grain from the church stores instead of just giving it out for free? Yep. Yeah, it's it's not good. So yeah, I think that is high. If you're going to give him a six, I will match it and he will get a 12 in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. All right. Um, this one is probably going to come as a bit of a surprise. It's it's a combo breaker. Oh, he's... He's, like, to the side like a coin. We have a full profile. We never have those. His bunny poof is majestic. He needs at least two points for the bunny poof. <laughs> he also, just on like, his own. he looks very, like, young and strong and, like... He doesn't have gray hair. Oh, he's not even... He doesn't even have, like, a salt and pepper thing going on. He's just... Yeah. He's a young, strong man who, who's got this famine in charge. I, I don't know. I, I like it. I feel like it's a nice combo breaker. Got that Roman nose. Yeah, big time. And the beard. The beard is good. Like, it is a hearty beard that isn't, like, kind of scraggly. Yeah, but he does not look like he's combed it recently. <laughs> no, it's curly, though. It's a curly beard. You can tell he has, like, really curly hair from the mm-hmm. illustrious bunny poof and... And the side, what hair is left is very curly. Yeah, he he would have a full head of hair. He has to shave that thing, that tonsure down on the regular. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty good. I'm going to score it high. What do you want to give it? I'm feeling like an eight. Yeah, yeah, it is up there. I, I'm going to give it an eight as well. And uh, that will give him 16, which gives him a whole four in Facium Sanctus. There are a couple more to look at. They are... Not this, they are not up to the quality, but both of them remind me of something specific. So I'm going to send you it at the book at the same time, but I'm going to tell you what it reminds me of first, which is you know, when somebody takes a leaf blower and they blow it at their mouth. Oh, yeah, that's that's clearly what's happening in both of these pictures. Oh, hey, yeah, fair. That is, uh, <laughs> he's riding in a fast car somehow. Or a jet, or whatever, whatever he's in in that gif you've sent me. But that—that that is Jeremy Clarkson in a very fast car. So he's doing that. He's somehow in a race car, even though it's the ninth century. So yeah, it's it's a really good thing that we're rating on the original image. But I see, so I can see where they got that idea because you can see in the original, his cheekbones are very sharp and there is a sharp line going down, but it's not a wrinkle. No, it is definitely, he just has beautiful sculpted cheekbones. (laughs) But 
they've turned it into flappy cheeks. They really did not get that memo right. The nuance is not <laughs> conveyed by these artists. Not at all. Guess that's a wrinkle. They just didn't know about the fast race cars. I mean, it's the ninth century. Tempus Pontificus. So, he was Pope from May 17th, 884, to September 885, one year and a score of 0.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yes! He was actually, Pope Hadrian III was canonized on June 2nd of 1891 by Pope Leo XIII due to his local veneration in Modena and the miracle-working bones. He's actually a saint? Can you believe it? No, I cannot believe it. Because of his miracle bones. Miracle saint bones. miracle bones sounds like a porno name every time I say it. Oh, <laughs> terrible. He has a feast day of July 8th. But Modena also celebrates him on September 7th, and he is not a patron saint. So for the first time in a while, we get to make someone a patron saint of something. Uh, well, it's clearly got to be jowls flapping at high speeds. Flappy jowls, high speed flappy jowls. Is anybody going to understand that? Are we going to look back on this list and have no idea what we're talking about? Well, and then I feel like because people don't do that a lot, we can extend it to, like, dogs out of car windows. Oh, that is a perfect thing for, to be a patron saint of. I would love this one. So, dogs out of car windows slash high-speed flappy jowls. He just became ever more popular. <laughs> so that brings us to his total score, which is an impressive... 24.25. Ooh. That's not bad. That's really not bad. Not that bad at all. What does that, is he like 20, 50, how high? Is he middle of the pack there? He's in 43rd place, so he's on the upper echelons of the middle of the pack. All right. Pretty good. So now I must ask you an important question, Fry. Do you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? No. No. Too many people are confused. Too many people are confused. Everything about him is some sort of confusion. So unfortunately, we cannot resoundingly yes this. So we are sorry, Hadrian III, but hopefully we have clarified some of the confusion about your life. But this is not the end of the episode, because first we have thank yous to make, and we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we will say thank you to Robert Taco and Brian Chafin. Ah, uh, thank you, Robert Taco. You only joined so you could listen to us read that bad <laughs> novel, and... Yep. We get, I would apologize for it, but I'm not going to. Look, watching the <laughs> watching Robert Taco and Ben Franklin Furter have an absolute mental meltdown about the content on our Patreon, the Pontifex series, <laughs> has just given me so much joy. 
It's been really good. We inspire some rage and some trauma in the best possible and entertaining way. So yeah, that's great. Also, he requested to be. Never chapter two. <laughs> this is this is a good message. Get on our Patreon. Find out what the hell we're talking about uh, <laughs> before we end part five. And so many parts to follow. 27. <laughs> so many. Oh my 40. God. 40. 35 if we did two chapters every time. Mm. It hurts. All right, but that is the end of our episode. So we will say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.